detective. Throw me. Scream! Scream for your lives! You're going out there to destroy them, right? Not to study, not to bring back. I've seen things you people wouldn't believe. Oh, I know this creature of yours. When the dragon gets this old, it knows nothing but pain. Scientists are saying the future is going to be far more futuristic than they originally predicted. Welcome to Healthcare Boy, gentlemen. Open the pod bay doors, Hal. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. So, celestial event. That works. You really shook the pillars of heaven, didn't you? What's the boogeyman? As a matter of fact, it was. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Illustrated Fan, the podcast within the Phantom Galaxy. I'm your host, Nathan Barbell, and I'm joined by my co-host, Dave Becker. Dave, how are you tonight? I'm doing wonderful. Thank you, sir. And um, boy, this is uh, this is going to be a fun one. <laughs> yeah. I, I, got, I got to rewatch all of these movies, the the, the short and the, and the, the, the feature length. Uh, this is going to be interesting. Yes, I think more than any of the episodes we've done so far, because, you know, on our very first episode, we covered some some really old movies, movies that were so old I'd never seen them before, you know, with with (laughs) some of the silent films and things like that. And we had covered we've covered, I think, a lot of newer films in the episodes that we've done. This is the first episode where everything was like a flashback nostalgia trip for me. (laughs) personally yes and uh probably the same with you where these are movies i saw when i was much younger and much more impressionable and i wonder if i should have but that's (laughs) that's kind of watching it i was like hmm i wonder about this now but i had a great time uh with this and i think it's going to be a lot of fun and so i think we can mention right up front and then we'll a couple other little uh, pieces of things I want to take care of, but we can mention the movies up front. Dave, you picked both of these. I think we mentioned last time we are looking at the works of Ralph Bakshi. And do you want to mention which two movies we're going to review? Absolutely. We're going to be reviewing wizards and fire and ice. And um, I, both of them fantasy films, you know, both of them with, with a very strong, um, uh, I, I guess with a fantasy uh, storyline, uh, because a lot of Ralph, Ralph Bakshi, for anyone who's not familiar, Ralph Bakshi, a very controversial animator. Um, he did Fritz the Cat, which I think was the first X-rated animated film. Uh, he did things like Heavy Traffic, Coonskin, uh, which is a movie that I, I can't bring myself to watch. Coonskin, no, I've right? never, I have never I seen that one. Do it. I, just, I can't watch that one. I actually own it. I can't watch that one. Um, and he did, uh, things like American pop and, um, just a lot of, uh, very controversial movies, very movies that have uh, been, been called racist and misogynistic and, and not um, without good reason and not without good reason. Let's be honest and not without good reason, but then you get into these two movies that we're doing and these are fantasy. And he also did another one. He did the Lord of the Rings. He did the, um, uh, the Lord of the Rings that came out, uh, I guess in the seventies it was, um, which, uh, you know, one of the things that Ralph Bakshi does is rotoscoping, which we can get into a little bit more, uh, as the show goes on, which is filming live actors and then animating tracing over them. 
to create animated cells over the live action. Um, but there are moments in some of these films where he's not, it's almost like he's just lifting out scenes from, and I'm almost sure one was El Cid. I'm almost sure that I yeah. noticed something was El Cid that he's lifting from some of these other movies um, and putting them into these. But uh, yeah, this is Ralph Bakshi's fantasy, at least two of his fantasy films. Lord of the Rings could have fit in this as well, but these are uh, wizards. And I think fire and ice sort of stand as the pinnacle of what was a Ralph Bakshi film. Yeah. Yeah. And I, that's one of the interesting things going back. It's uh, we'll get into Bakshi a little bit more here, but you know, it's funny to think that, when I was growing up, certainly some of these movies, I think actually probably the uh, one of the ones we're going to review tonight, Fire and Ice, actually came out during my lifetime. The next one to come out, though, uh, if I'm not mistaken, is Cool World in 1992. And <laughs> that was one that I, you know, I... I would have, I wanted to go see at the theater, but my parents weren't having that. Right. <laughs> but I think, you know, it was like, it looks like a looter version of, uh, what was it? Um, Roger Rabbit. So I don't think they were all really yes. up. That, that, that was Bakshi, Bakshi going back to Bakshi. <laughs> yes. What that yes. Was. And I, I, all I remember <laughs> is the comic books I was reading at the time, there was a poster that had, uh, you know, the Kim Basinger character and her shapely bottom on the cover. And it said Hollywood, if she could, <laughs> as the tagline <laughs> tagline for the film. And that is stuck in my head forever. Wow. So I do want to uh, take a, a, a moment, though, and talk about like our last episode was the Batman episode, if you uh, if, uh, if you remember. And yep. when we did the Batman episode, they uh one of the things that we did was we had a giveaway where i set up a giveaway to give away copies of waltz with bashir which was the movie that we did uh the episode before when we talked yep. about war films we covered yes. waltz with bashir so i have a dvd copy of waltz with bashir and a blu-ray copy of batman ninja which we also did a mini review of on that on the episode talking about batman so i have yes. both of those to give away what i said was basically anyone who, who left a review or over at like iTunes or went and shared the podcast. Uh, they kind of went into the drawing. So what I've done, I'll do that at the very end of this episode. We pulled two names and we'll have that at the very end. And I will basically, what I'll do afterwards is uh, let everybody, uh, once you've heard the episode, either get in contact with me or I'll contact you. And uh, we'll give you guys the options. I have a couple of different things, but we have Walter Bashir and Batman Ninja, and we will get those uh, out. So we'll do that at the very end of the episode. Otherwise, I think we are set up to start this episode. And before we jump into Bakshi, we probably need a bit of a warm-up for something like that. Yeah, right. <laughs> I think we're, we'll do our short film. And the short film we chose this time, we announced last time, was Ricky Ticky Tavi. Uh, we were talking, it came up in conversation, I think because we were talking about the Warner Brothers cartoons and we were reviewing yeah. One Froggy Evening, if you remember, um, yes. uh, Dave. And somehow Ricky Ticky Tabby came out of that discussion. And uh, I remember this is another flashback for me uh, to childhood. And I remember oh, very yeah. specifically seeing this. And it's based off of a Roger Kipling short story. But I saw this film, this animated short, well before I had ever read Kipling's story, which is a which is a very good story. It's a great story. 
And in in truth, this is a really fun animated movie. Again, you're it, Chuck Jones is involved in it, so that was probably how it came up. We're talking about Chuck Jones, right? And there was the same year this came out. They did release a live action movie entitled Ricky Tiki Tabby, which I've never seen. I'm only really familiar with this one. And uh, this, it tells the story of a mongoose and mongooses. You know, we've had rabbits and ducks and cats and mice, (laughs) but I'm pretty certain up until this point, we never had an animated mongoose, but it follows Ricky Tiki Tabby and he becomes a part of this English family who's living in India. And, there are other creatures there in the garden. There's an anthropomorphism going on in the cartoon that isn't as, you know, obviously prominent in the Kipling story, but you kind of expect that. And I really don't feel like it's too overplayed here. Then you come into contact with the two cobras, Nag and Nagina, who they, uh, the, the fact that the family is here and the humans are encroaching has angered them. They are sort of ready to lash out the family, kill members of the family if necessary. And basically, Ricky Tiki Tabby comes uh, comes to their defense and ends up kind of fighting with the Cobras. And the Cobras are his primary nemesis in the short. And there are other elements there, but that's essentially, it's just 27 minutes long. And I'm sort of fascinated, going back and watching it, I expected to not be that impressed by the animation. And there are overall it definitely has the you know it's it's a bit cheaper looking uh than some of, of of what we may be used to now but it's also a lot more fluid than i remembered uh yeah. there's a lot more uh just the character design and the way the characters express their uh their emotions is a little bit more nuanced than i remembered and i got kind of caught all up in it again i Really had a lot of fun rewatching it, particularly rewatching it with my kids who really got into this conflict. And the trick is, how do you do this without making it seem too savage or too dark? You know, uh, or the mongoose is going to kill the cobras, or the cobra is going to kill the mongoose. Right. I- I'll tell you what, I'm I'm right there with you. This was from my childhood. I probably saw this when it premiered in '75, and I remember growing up watching it once a year and I couldn't wait for this to come on. I mean, I saw it annually in the days before VCR and, and anything like at least the days before I had VCR, I'm sure, I'm sure videotape existed. It just didn't exist for me. Um, watching <laughs> yeah. this over and over and over again and um, every year and absolutely loving it. And one of the things I take away from first off, uh, we should point out is narrated by Orson Welles. That's true. Yes. You know, and, and Orson <laughs> Welles is just one of those guys when you hear his voice, it it almost it almost raises the um uh what am I trying to say? Like the, the validity, the sophistication the, or whatever. The pedigree, it, it, right? That's pedigree, why you get him yeah. to that's why you get him to sell your frozen peas or your wine if you can. No. Exactly. I mean, nice- even <laughs> even he even even something like Mel Brooks's History of the World Part One seems loftier when you have Orson Welles Transformers the movie it. baby right <laughs> <laughs> of which he quoted him he goes I think I play a planet that eats other planets but I wasn't really sure <laughs> yeah right <laughs> um, but not only does Orson Welles narrate he does uh, two voices in this now the one I picked up right away now first I think we need to talk before I get into that let's talk about what really stayed with me uh, from this movie as a kid? I liked I liked Ricky Tiki Tavi. The family itself is secondary. 
Yeah, they did. They don't really matter. <laughs> felt secondary. This is Ricky Ticky Tavi, the mongoose, and the cobras, which are Nog and Nagira, are their names. Orson Welles does the voice of Nog, and I could tell. I could yeah, tell yeah. Uh, that he was doing the voice of Nog, and I think June Foray, the great June Foray, did all of the she did Rocket J Squirrel and things like that. Does the voice Rocky of Nagira? <laughs> yes. Those cobras scared the living hell out of me as a kid. I thought they were just two of the most intense villains that I had ever seen animated other or otherwise, you know, when, when I was a kid, they just really, the way they, the way they talk with the whisper, you know, it just really got to me, um, as a kid. And, but what's funny, what, just real quick to get back to Orson Welles. I did not know until very recently that he also did the voice of what was it that um, a muskrat Chuchundra. Oh, really? He no, did I... the voice of Chuchundra, and he does not sound like Orson Welles. That is Orson Welles acting. <laughs> which he did from time to time. <laughs> which he did from time to time, yes. But I would have never, if I watched it a hundred times, I've probably seen this, I'm going to go out on a limb and say I've seen this 15 to 20 times. It wasn't until this, this not this viewing, but the one right before this, when I reviewed it on the blog, that I realized he had done the voice of that muskrat. I would have never put Orson Welles together with that. It just did no. not, it, it didn't sound like him. Not at all. And there really are only, like you said, there's only about five voices in the movie. Um, yeah, there aren't many. There aren't many. The 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 the, the, um, the English family, they're different. They have their own voices. But again, um, even Teddy, you know, the young boy who's who's good friends with Ricky Ticky and, and um, the one who Ricky Ticky is sort of r- really protecting in this um, just sort of feels incidental. He doesn't really feel as important to this as the animal characters. Um, and, uh, anyway, what did you think? Did, uh, as a kid, like I said, Nag and Nagira scared the hell out of me. I don't know how your reaction was when you first saw them. No, I, I agree with you. And I think that's what stood out to me this time. They're still, they don't scare me now, obviously, but they're still imposing. Right. They're still yeah. threatening. They're still heavies, you know? And I think it's interesting to compare this because this is, and it's perfectly reasonable because this is 1975, right? Something like that. 19. Yep. It is 75. Yeah, 75. Yes. And. When did the Jungle Book, the animated Disney movie that everyone loves, when and that might have been a little earlier, but it was yeah. in the late sixties. I want to say yeah. sixty-seven or something like that. So, yeah. so a handful of years earlier, but we're not talking like a, a golf of it wasn't a, decade a decade or anything, yeah, right? Nothing, yes. And so, and it, it, that's a perfectly good, I think, comparison point because anthropomorphic animal characters in a setting, and and Rudyard Kipling, you know, uh, and that setting in in India, and yet in the jungle book, the Shere Khan character, he is imposing. He's a heavy too. It could be kind of scary, but the Disney movie keeps kind of undercutting him a little bit. You know, yeah. they'll have him, they'll have a humorous moment to sort of take the edge off of him a little bit. Yes. And, and so he doesn't feel quite like the Shere Khan that shows up in the books or the Shere Khan that shows up more recently. Idris Elba plays him. Or, or Benedict Cumberbatch, depending on which version of the recent Jungle Books you want to take, the live-action versions they recently made. Here, those two snakes, they are given like a certain amount of dimension because they're villainous and they have bad intentions, 
but they also have reasons. You know, they're animals and they're trying to survive and they're recognizing a threat and they're technically not wrong. Right. And no, absolutely. Yeah. But, but you just don't see that because they just feel no, so yes. they feel evil. They feel evil in this movie. And Ka the snake in the jungle book, a same deal where Ka is going to eat Mowgli, but he comes off nonsensical. You know, he's played for Pratt Falls. Just never right. happens here. No, this is the scene where, 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 um, Nog has, uh, snuck, snuck into the bathroom and he's going to wait for, uh, the man. He says, the man has a fire stick, you know, talking about a rifle. Uh, but I'm going to wait here because he, when he goes to take a bath, he won't have his fire stick and that, and I can strike. And Ricky Ticky sort of rushing around the bathroom. Now, Nog does not know Ricky Ticky is in there. He does not know that, that he's watching him. And, and Ricky is trying to think, oh, I just have to, I have to grab his neck and I have to, I have to hold on. I can't let go. I've got to grab him by the neck to kill him um, or else, you know, he's trying to save the family. That's a very intense sequence. It's very it suspenseful. Really and yeah. if you look at how it's animated and narrated and voiced, it's all these little pieces coming together and it totally works. And that's what I forgot. Like, it feels organic. It feels like someone t- telling you a story. It just sort of feels like it happens, but nothing just happens in animation. And I right. think that was the genius of Chuck Jones. We mentioned last time he imbues these characters with so much character for these 27 minutes. And I l- actually think one of the beautiful things about it is that the human characters are there and they do just recede into the background. It right. almost creates that perfect fantasy for kids that there's this entire drama going on around us that we have no idea about like this family never knows how many times it almost gets killed <laughs> right they don't they say oh he saved us a couple times like yeah no, he saved you more than that right ricky Tiki's pulled know. your butt out of the fire <laughs> numerous times it's like if you knew what lassie had done timmy if you knew right. <laughs> um but no the, i i love this and i loved watching it again because i'm right back as a kid you know, I'm right back as a kid watching yeah. this and caught up in all the um, the emotions that I that I had at that time. I mean, 75, uh, depending on when it came out, I would have been either five or six, um, probably five, because, in, I, I, you know, I, my birth is October uh, when this came out. And I'm sure I watched it. I'm sure I watched it uh, in its debut. Um, uh, my mother was very keen on pointing out to us. Um, when uh, the animated specials were on, when the Charlie Brown specials were on, when the Frosty I the loved Snowman that too and, because yeah. it made everything feel like an event. And like, like Ricky Tiki Tabby doesn't have a specific ho- that, that I remember holiday associated with it, but it, no, that fact that it would come that it almost felt annual, it was it, it, it made it feel more special, you know. It, it really did. It, 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 you know, and then and then there's always that little bit of melancholy when it's over yeah now that we have videotape and dvds and uh, I mean, we got the hell you watch ricky tiki tabby in five minutes right now if exactly you and, and or stream it or watch it on youtube yeah. whatever you can watch it whenever you want but back then once ricky tiki tabby was done and the end credits rolled you're like well now i gotta wait another year i'm not gonna see this again and i hope i hope and pray they show it <laughs> right. but it's I, I the thing is, it was special in 1975. It's still special now, and it is honestly. I guess one of the things that's sort of a, a to me that feels like a disappointment. Maybe this is just me being the get off my lawn kids kind of deal. But 
I just don't see that we're at a point right now where someone's going to make a, a, a Rudyard Kipling adaptation mm. of this quality and level animated and aimed at a younger audience and it and it and it retain the essence of what Kipling was going for here. You know, yes. they have to retain the, the danger. Yes. Yes, absolutely. It retains that. And at the same time, you can you can watch this as a kid. And it will, you know, it it, it may be upsetting to very young children. Yeah. Uh, even today, but I think with you know, I, I I think kids can handle it, and and clearly it's geared yeah. towards children. I think it would be a very special experience for them um, to see it, even as an adult. I think even adults can appreciate. Yeah, my kids uh, what's it. going on here. Yeah, and you know, and, and one thing I want to say about that, you're right. Like it it is intense, but we aren't talking, and I think kids of a certain age could watch these movies too we're not talking things like the plague dogs and watership down here oh, you know god <laughs> plague dog by the time plague dogs is over you want to open a vein and just bleed out it's so depressing yeah. you know we're gonna we'll have to do that episode but i think we're gonna need we will need some wine for that one maybe oh, Dave, we're, we're, we're definitely we're definitely going to need some lubrication for yeah. doing that episode no doubt right uh yeah so how about your rating for ricky ticky tabby I got to go with it. I, again, I got to go with a 9.5 out of 10. I mean, it is damn near a 10. I, I think I, you know, what? I'm going to go to hell with it. 10 out of 10. <laughs> definitely, definitely watch this, uh, this short. And like you said, it's 20 some minutes, which is a television special without commercials. Yeah. Is what it amounts to. It's, it's a nine for me, but super close, but man, it, it, what they accomplished here. And that's the thing, what they accomplished in this, animated feature tv you know i think that's what strikes me so much when i go back and watch these old tv specials and things there is so much heart and there's so much talent and artistry in these things that they didn't need these giant budgets uh to put together you know a feature film or to put together something uh with all of this money what they were achieving here was the artistry of a handful of people a lot of times and man this is top notch i agree absolutely so yeah and then uh, perfectly tying into that hand-drawn artistry kind of feel i mean that's probably a good time we can move right into talking about ralph bakshi and i don't think we really need to talk you know and i didn't realize you know bakshi uh he's been animating for a long time but i don't think he's done any he's still alive but he hasn't done anything yeah. new in uh, as far as i'm aware i know he had a kickstarter thing a little while back but i don't think he's had anything new released in years maybe not since cool world Probably not. It's been many years. And I don't know if he's been associated with everything. I know uh, it's so funny. He's such a, Ralph Bakshi is such a sort of a contentious, um, standoffish kind of guy. I mean, even when I was watching uh, Fire and Ice and watching um, the uh, the audio commentary, uh where Ralph, Ralph Bakshi says, well, I'm here, you know, for the audio commentary for Fire and Ice. And there was somebody moderating it. I can't remember the gentleman's name now. And he's like, um, uh, oh, shoot. You got any questions? Go ahead, shoot. And the guy <laughs> asked his first question. And Ralph Bakshi said, what do you mean? <laughs> you know, just very, <laughs> I know that. I, and I know there was a situation when he appeared at the um, uh, Alamo Draft House down in, uh, uh, down in Austin where um, uh, he was doing a Q&A on stage. And I think the uh, the moderator there had said something almost along the lines of, you know, the racism, your, the accusations of racism. And, and Ralph Baxter, what are you calling me, a racist? And he drops the microphone and walked off stage. <laughs> you know, he's just a very contentious um, uh, individual. Yeah. 
and you uh, get we that didn't ask and, you to and, make that movie we're just asking you right. questions we're just asking asking you a question right and um but you see that you almost get that personality sort of bleeds out in some of these films because something like uh, the first one we're going to be talking about is Wizards, obviously, because if we're going, uh, you know, chronologically, Wizards was 1977 that that movie came out. Um, and there are parts of this that feel as if they are just such an intensely original and amazing fantasy. What's going on? And I want to say that those are my favorite portions of the movie are when it's not even animation, when it's sort of like you're looking at a storybook. Like the narrator when she's narrating that like yes, opening when, scene. Yes, and then the several the scenes throughout of it. Uh, you know, throughout the movie. Several scenes, the birth of the twins, and then several other scenes when she's narrating and it becomes stills. It's no longer animation, it's stills. Susan Tyrell, who I think was also in uh, John Waters' Crybaby. <laughs> If I'm not mistaken, <laughs> I, I love think that she movie. appeared in that movie. I do too. Um, but she narrates these moments where it seems just straight up fantasy. I mean, this is yeah. like almost as if, um, like almost a uh, an audio book in a way, where you're just looking at these still shots, uh, and it's not black and white with sepia or or tan or whatever, and, and black, and then just really very cool. Those I love those sequences. They're like half finished movie. illustrations too. You get it's, it's sort of yes. like chalk pastels against that, like you said, that like beige background, and it looks like the beginnings of a storyboard, the beginnings of a world, but not fully visualized, and it's kind of captivating. Yes. yes, and you get it. It makes them seem otherworldly, and um, just to sort of set it up, I mean, this is. Um, it's set in the distant future, wizards, and um, you know, millions of years after the Earth has been destroyed by a nuclear conflict. And it tells the story of two sorcerers, the kindly Avatar, voiced by Bob Holt, and his evil brother Blackwolf, uh, Stephen Grabbers, uh, sons of the fairy queen Delia. And we get that with Susan Tyrell's narration, like you were saying, that whole sort of setup uh, about how Delia had these two, two boys, one wholly good and one wholly evil. You know, Avatar is good. Black Wolf is evil. Uh, after the death of their mother, Black Wolf tried to take control and set himself up as king, only to be defeated in battle by Avatar. Having languished for thousands of years in Scorch, a land populated by the mutated descendants of mankind, Black Wolf turns his attention towards ancient technology, instruments of war such as rifles and tanks, which he'll use in yet another attempt to conquer the world. Avatar, who lives among the elves and fairies, is much older than he was when he first faced Black Wolf, but accompanied by both Weehawk, Richard Romanus, and Richard Romanus, I, I, I can't <laughs> see his name in any Ralph Bakshi and not think of Mean Streets. Yeah, right. Like Michael, <laughs> Michael in Mean Streets standing up against you know, Robert De Niro's Johnny Boy um, every, time I, every time I see his name in these movies. Uh, but Weehawk, Richard Ramos's voice, him, he's an elf soldier, and the elven princess Eleanor, Jesse Wells, uh, the aging wizard sets off for Scorch, where he will unleash his newest invention, a robot named Peace. Well, I'm not even right about that, because Peace actually came uh, as an assassin. I'm looking at my, um, uh, my synopsis for my review, which is, boy, what is this? This is going back to uh, 2014. Um, but Peace actually was an assassin sent by um, Black Wolf, uh, who um, uh, Avatar eventually sort of uh, 
turns or peace is not looking. He doesn't want to, um, he doesn't want to be an assassin. And so he sort of joins up with Avatar and Eleanor and Weehawk. Uh, peace is voiced by David Preval. Uh, and the whole idea is he wants to prevent uh, what is going to be a destructive war when Black, uh, when uh, Black Wolf unleashes this army of his, which is, seems to be based on Nazi Germany, not just based on Nazi Germany. Um, it is Nazis, and he even goes so far as to show scenes from, is it Triumph of the Will? Yes. Um, showing scenes of Triumph of the Will as his army rides into battle. Um, now, one of the things, and it's funny because when I'm looking at my review here, I, I, it, I was less impressed with Wizards the first time I saw it than I was this most recent, and it's because... Avatar, and I think I texted you about this last night. Um, when you see the character of Avatar as he's older now, depicted in the in like the storyline, you know, after he had you know been younger and defeated Black Wolf, and now he's living among the elves and the fairies. Quentin Tarantino said that Avatar was like a cross between something from uh, J.R.R. Tolkien's The Hobbit and Mel Brooks's Two Thousand Year Old Man. <laughs> and you get that with this. There's so much sort of comedy around this character that for me, as I was watching it, you get these Susan Tyrell, these intense fantasy uh, building of the building of the world, the building of the mythology and the history. And then it comes in with um, uh, some of the soldiers of Black Wolf uh, doing comedic scenes and then Avatar being sort of a half comedic character. It seemed very sort of, I don't want to say off-putting, it just seemed like it was out of place with what I was expecting the movie to be with the other sequences. This most recent viewing, I was more in tune because I think I've seen more Ralph Bakshi now than I had by this point in 2014. And it definitely feels as if it sort of fits in with Bakshi's vision and his approach, but still maintain the fantasy. So I actually was more impressed this time around. Yeah, and I agree. And I think that's one of the things that's an interesting counterpoint as we talk about these movies. I think I was the same way. My my dad had rented this for me back in the 80s. And um, to say that I was confused was an understatement <laughs> initially, uh, particularly because I think that co the cover of that uh, version was touting the fact that Mark Hamill was a voice in this movie the same year Star Wars comes out. But that's wow. also a bit generous because yeah. I think he shows up uh, all not quite a full hour in and he's dead two minutes later. Right. Yeah. You don't get much Mark Hamill. No. And so I'm thinking Star Wars or I'm thinking, you know, uh, so when I see this and a combination of the animation style and like you said, that kind of particularly with the Avatar character, that the kind of silliness inherent in him, uh, it, it makes it seem kind of jokey, you know, and it's hard to kind of, you know, you're sitting down for a fantasy adventure, this epic fantasy adventure, and the whole thing feels a little bit like a, like a joke, you know, and I think yeah. purposely so in some ways, you know. And, and you even get that with with the soldiers, those those sort of stormtrooper-like characters in... in uh... Uh, Black Wolf's army, uh, some of what they do. I mean, they get that whole moment where the one guy's screaming about his friend being killed and he's screaming, you know, like, we, we got to take, you know, he's screaming, let's take out the enemy, whatever, we get back at him. Then his friend stands up. 
Yeah. Um, he's like, hey, <laughs> uh, hey, I'm uh, I'm not dead. And then the, the, the guy accidentally shoots him. And then once again, <laughs> we got to get these guys. We got to get them. They killed him. They killed You know, it's just, it's just very, I, I, I don't think I'd seen enough Bakshi the first time I saw this movie to fully sort of grasp um, his style. There's and, still and a little bit that, of Robert know, Crumb rolling around in his yes, head. I think there what he really mean, is. <laughs> this, which which he can decide whether that's a benefit or, or not here. But it's a very uh it's a it's it's just a very sort of interesting movie because I think the plot of this movie and the movie we're gonna talk about next, they're not that dissimilar and they're really not that they're not that far off from being almost what would be derivative fantasy stories. You know, they're um I love fantasy, but I think these are pretty stock, you know, in the wake of Tolkien. And this movie comes out the same year as Star Wars. So you can't really uh, pin them on for copying Lucas at this point. But, you know, Tolkien and other fantasy authors coming in the wake of Tolkien, that this is a pretty standard sci-fi fantasy story, I think, in both this in Wizards and then when we see Fire and Ice. And Wizards gets very idiosyncratic with it, though. You know, it's very uh, odd in a lot of ways in how it chooses to tell that story. (laughs) And I think that irritated me as a kid, and it sort of um, delighted me as an adult. (laughs) I feel the same way. Like, my first viewing of this, and I was older. I didn't get to see this when I was younger. But um, uh, my first viewing of this, I actually, in my review, I said, um, you know, the Susan Tyrell portions setting up the origin story of Avatar and Black Wolf set the perfect tone for a serious minded work of fiction. Unfortunately, Bakshi tosses some ill-advised. I put ill-advised comedy in my (laughs) review. I would take that back now. I don't think it's ill-advised. You know, I tossed uh, some comedy into the mix that, um, you know, I said, uh, undermined the film's dramatic elements, but it's not what he was going for. He, he was setting this, you know, I was thinking this is going to be a dramatic fantasy, but that's not Ralph Bakshi. That's just not what he does. Uh, at least in this type of movie, you know, I think it's a little different when we get the fire and ice, but in this kind of movie, um, you get, uh, you get scenes that could have been in Fritz the cat and, and could have been in heavy traffic. Yeah, um, you know, with with the way the comedy is in it, you, you get those moments in this that could have just as easily been in those earlier films. Um, Even the and, way the characters are drawn and designed, I mean, they yes. look they look like like the that fairy lady looks like looks like a, a bad tattoo artist or something somebody scribbled on a bar napkin, you know? Um, yeah, and they, and again, <laughs> very much Ralph Bakshi. You expect yeah, that top very, to go fly off at any right. moment. It's very you know? distracting, and it lo- they do look <laughs> like they look like they are crumb like a adult cartoon kind of look you absolutely know? like avatar fall off yeah right he looks kind of like he's like a like a hobo or something <laughs> a yeah. little bit he does look like mel brooks's if you ever yeah. saw that animation of that animated uh that they did of mel brooks's 2000 year old man routine um he kind of looks like that little guy yeah <laughs> and yet Bocci goes on to do Lord of the Rings, I think, what, a year after this in 1978. Yeah, which is straight up fantasy. That's strong, you know, that's straight up fantasy. You can see his affection for Tolkien and the works of Tolkien in this movie, you know, that kind of gentle fairy world. And I always thought it's weird, and I still think it's weird, that this movie chooses to go the route, the opposite of Star Wars, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. And 
those first few lines of Susan Terrell where she talks about this is the result of nuclear war. She even goes as far to say the work of five terrorists initially. Like she gives yes. very specific information yes, about the way this world burned to the ground. And then it just jumps into madness with the mutants were coming up and then it, and, and things like each new birth was a new tra- tragedy. Vis- and visiting, I was like, visiting the holy men, visiting yeah. the church. With the royal, with the holy uh, relics, which are like what yeah. Coca Cola signs, yes, and- yeah, <laughs> and all these things, and he builds this in, and then part way through these movies, or part way through this film, you get Black Wolf, who kind of uncovers the Nazi iconography and the Nazi propaganda, and not only does he uncover, it's not like oh, now there are Nazis. It's the story specifically deals with him using propaganda. Like he propaganda becomes the biggest weapon more than the tanks and everything else he uncovers. He's got this ethos that he's going to use again, even though he knows it's what burned the world down in the first place. Right. Right. That he's just going to follow along with it. And I think what, what really sort of throws you, there's a scene here. And and again, it even got me this time. Um, I think it was affected, affected me more last time, but it got me this time. Where um, Avatar, Eleanor, and Weehawk, um, and Peace show up in this in this um, village of what is it? Fairies. Yeah, the small fairies, sort of happy little creatures. Some of them are naked and they're just flying around. And this one cute, really cute little one, speaking for the rest of them, comes up and talks to them. Well, all of a sudden, and again, I don't <laughs> want to get too deep into spoilers. He's dead. I mean, shot <laughs> yes. dead, and you're looking at his dead body, this cute little fairy's dead body sitting there. And it, it's sort of like the, the two worlds of this. You get that, that cuteness, that innocence, that fun, the, um, the comedy, and just sort of the fun of fantasy and the darkness of it, the, the evil, the, 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 you know, with, with the Nazis. And um, you get that because Avatar is played for comedy. Uh, but Black Wolf, there's no comedy with this guy. I mean, he's just a straight up evil dude. And and the and the movie though plays some of these concepts like there is character development in these characters. I don't know. There's a great amount of it, but you have this idea that Avatar knows that if he's going to have to go up against Black Wolf, then maybe he's not going to be able to be the gentle guy that he's been able to be for all these years. And yet, like, look at the end of that that conflict between the two of them. <laughs> I just did yeah, you see what, that coming? Yeah, did you see that? Coming? Let, let, let's just say without without going too yeah. deep into it. Uh, think think Raiders of the Lost Ark. But the, <laughs> the build up. With, am I wrong yeah. to say that the build up to this that conflict yes. between the both of them? It seems like it carries such emotional weight, and then boom. And then where it goes, it's almost like Ralph Bakshi sort of sort of saying, "Hey, screw you! <laughs> <laughs> you were expecting something more than this. Too bad." Right. But <laughs> but it's those little quirks and things I think that make the the, the put the smile on my face that made me enjoy the movie because I think if we're being honest, I like the way it looks. I like this fancy world. It's kind of a fun place to be, but it's very wonky. Like uh, I was reading, uh, someone had put a review on Letterbox, and they said this whole thing reeks of of uh, 1970s dirt weed. <laughs> I feel like <laughs> I think when you take all the pieces together, the the way the music is handled, kind of the rough ruggedness of the animation at points. I mean, mm-hmm. it's not that some of it's not beautiful, but it feels very rough. It feels it feels almost unfinished, you know, in some ways. Like it doesn't feel yeah. refined at all. That kind of was Bakshi style, I know. But the story is very raggedy 
uh, I think you like these characters. They never quite feels as epic as it wants to. A character's like Peace. I want more from that character. You know, he's yeah, kind of fascinating and you want to spend more time with him. And I think that some of the avatar and the humor and stuff, it's not that it's bad, but it's, it is juxtaposed in a very jarring way. It's almost yes, like, that's what it is. Yeah. It's not, it, it would have worked. It, it doesn't, bl- it doesn't mesh. Well, you go right from Susan Tyrell's sort of, um, uh, you know, very serious, narration of what's happening in this world right to avatar cracking jokes yeah and it's you know and so is it oh my back and you know things like (laughs) that or whatever he's doing um it just it 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 seems very like you said very jarring it just doesn't seem to it's it's almost as if the two worlds exist in different different realities you know where susan tyrell's giving us giving us the serious the fantasy and um, you know the serious fantasy of, of 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 these two characters in Avatar, this mighty magician, and then it comes over here, and he's just this sort of nebbish little dude. Yeah, yes. <laughs> and I think though that you know, when on one hand you can kind of see that as a fault, I think that that I, because I'll be honest, like to be a full uh, full disclosure, I think I admire Bakshi more than I really enjoy most of his mm-hmm. stuff and i think it's like uh, there's not necessarily a boxy movie including the lord of the rings where i look at it and say this is a master me personally you know this is mm-hmm. a masterpiece i look at them and i have lots of things i admire and i think and there's points where I, I i just wish i was like i wonder if he could have pulled that together or he could have done that a little bit more and wizards more than a lot of them is kind of feels that way to me it's like a yeah. bag it's like a mixed bag for me of there's lots of things I enjoy about it. Uh, it's kind of like you have that really off kilter relative, and you go to their house and you have a great time. And on the way out the door, you're just thinking, "Man, man, I hope they're okay." Yeah, <laughs> right. <know? laughs> and it's kind of that way with wizards, where you watch it, you have a good time, and on the way, sort of as it's receding your mind, you're just like, "Man, it's something just not <laughs> something's a little off, just a little bit off." Yeah, yeah, it just doesn't. It doesn't quite. You had fun watching it, and I had even more fun this time than I yeah, did the first time too, I saw I it. I really enjoyed it a lot more, um, but it just still has. Uh, it's it's it really is like you know you can bl- you can blend genres, you can blend styles of you can blend comedy and fantasy and drama and action. You can blend them together. But it's almost as if uh, this is just a, a, a conflict between them. Okay, you got comedy and and action over here, and you've got fantasy and drama over here, and we're just going to keep butting these scenes together and push, you know, like like yes. having them butt heads uh, to see which one's going to win out in the end. And I guess you, I think the thing that we maybe don't have is quite as appreciate uh, an appreciation of now or, or modern viewers don't is now we get things that are far more easily pitched in the sort of middle ground of not quite for adults and not quite for kids. There wasn't really a lot of that. You either had here's Fritz the cat and his adult work over here. And then you've got Disney and everything going on, you know, an animation is just for children. So when you try to make a mainstream thing like wizards, it's like they try to almost appeal to both, but I in no way would consider this a, kid movie you know you could no, watch it no, with a no. kid but you, you need could. to be aware of what kid you're watching it with yeah i, I don't i don't know there's anything like greatly yeah. um uh yeah you know, that, that you would have an issue with the kids but at the same time 
kids are going to be asking questions. You're going to explain you know, a lot. You're going to do a lot of explaining it. about the Nazis, and you may want to do on a Sunday afternoon or whenever yes, you watch exactly. this movie. <laughs> well, son, let me tell you about the Nazis. Yeah. Well, how about we? How about we sit down and actually watch all of Triumph of the Will, and then you'll understand. The fact that an animated film that's aimed at maybe more of a family audience would want you to think about fascism in such a realistic yes. and thoughtful way is not a bad thing. No, and that's it's, it's the not. that's the it's the glass half full thing, right? It's like it's a very kind of of all the movies we've reviewed on this this series so far, it's the one that almost confounds me the most because it's like yeah, on one hand this, on one hand that. I I still come down that I like it. I I recommend it. I think if you've never seen a boxy movie, I don't know where you would start. I don't know if I would start with Wizards. Uh, maybe 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 the next one, but I think. What would you say? This is this is almost a little too eccentric, I think, maybe as a well, starting let, let's point. Let's put it this way. If you want to see a Ralph Bakshi movie, just a straight-up Ralph Bakshi movie, I would definitely probably recommend this one maybe over Fritz the Cat or Heavy Traffic oh, for or sure, something for like sure. that. <laughs> but um, if you want to see like the best of, a, of Ralph Bakshi yeah, you know, hang tight. Yeah, yeah. Because I think we're we're going to get into something a little bit better just pretty soon. Before we do the ratings, the last thing I want to talk about because he does it here in this film, and he's done it in most of his animation. But the rotoscoping becomes a very big deal, you know. Particularly beyond this film, he starts yes. to get into this fascination with rotoscoping, essentially illustrating over filmed actors and actual movements. And I think that's really one of the most interesting things he brings to the table because. He does he does kind of stumble upon the fact that the it does make these characters, even when they may be kind of silly in their general design, it makes them feel more real. It makes the world yes. feel more lived in. There the, you get the nuances of someone scratching their butt or their back or or turning around or doing a double take, the kinds of move or just you know, pausing before they stoop to pick something up. Stuff that an animator just maybe doesn't have the time to take into account or just doesn't necessarily think about. And that's what makes it fascinating. So that's, again, yeah. one side. The other side no, is... I agree. The big battle scenes. Like when he gets into these big scenes of people riding on horses, he does a weird animated thing where it doesn't no longer look like rotoscoping. It looks weird. Like it's almost like strange moving silhouettes. Like he's just throwing an animated silhouette on top of an actor or a moving yes, figure. and it, Exactly. It's very strange. It carries on through Lord of the Rings and a little bit in Fire and Ice, but really, really prominent in Lord of the Rings. And all I can think of are the special effects he used to make the Banshee in the in, in Darby O'Gill and the Little People back in like the <laughs> 50s. Like that weird special effect. I'm not sure that stuff works. No, and 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 it is so you know it's funny because you you know th there's rotoscoping that you get in fire and ice and the one you're talking about in this one is it's all like i said it almost lifts he, he look looks as if he lifted scenes from el cid yes and yes other films like that where he right not an homage but he in. literally took the footage of Just el took cid. the footage yes. and put um like you said uh you know put a silhouette over top of them so it's not the actual footage and had them ride up and then they cut to the animation sort of watching them coming closer yeah. and then you go back to these creatures riding forward or these 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 warriors riding forward um yeah it's jarring it really is it really is just very sort of uh jarring to um and it's funny because in the um, in the commentary, when they were talking, I, I was watching the comments, as I mentioned, watching the commentary. I think it was for Wizards with Ralph Baxter, but it might have been for Fire and Ice. 
um, the moderator had brought up rotoscoping and Ralph Bakshi got again, a little standoffish. Everyone's always talking about rotoscoping about what, what a process it is. And, Computers do that all the time. They take images and they trace over them and they do it and nobody says anything about it. But for some reason with, you know, with me, with rotoscoping, you know, it's all he used to talk about. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) He he would make a deal of it every time they say with the amazing, say Dynamation with all of Ray Harryhausen. With with everything Ray Harryhausen did. (laughs) Dynamation. Yes, I remember that. Like what the hell is Dynamation? (laughs) Yeah, so what? what's your rating on this one, Dave? You know what? I'm going to give it sort of a tenuous uh, 7.5 out of 10. I think that that's probably a good rating. Um, uh, and I think it's like a, one you should watch. Yeah. You should definitely watch it. But if you're not familiar with Ralph Bakshi, this will... This will get you familiar with Ralph yeah. Bakshi. It's almost, it's almost like being th- thrown into the arena of, yeah, they, of Ralph was- Bakshi. But... It's a better arena to be in than some of the other ones we mentioned. Fritz yeah. the Cat. American or even Pop, American, I would, yeah. Yeah, American Pop might be a little bit, you know, because it's got that 50s. But there's also a dark storyline under that one, too. You know, there's, 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 yeah, there's, that's there's true. violence and so forth in American Pie. American Pie, Jesus. American Pop. <laughs> um, that... Uh, you know, you don't even quite see in Wizards, but I, I would agree. If you're going to get American pop, wouldn't be terrible. But I think Wizards is a little more accessible to younger audiences and people who are not familiar. Yeah, and it's a and it's a fun fantasy adventure. I'm going to go seven as well, and that's lo- largely because those idiosyncrasies, those little things that make Wizards, it's the eccentricity that I like. I mean, it's the it's the it's the having a little bit of humor, and I think that's what. And we'll talk about this a little bit in the next movie. And uh, humor to me is what does kind of save that sword and sorcery genre at this point in time. It's late seventies, early eighties. Uh, you, what makes Conan the Barbarian a little bit more? I mean, besides some of the filmmaking quality, you know, there's a humor to Arnold's character. You know, yeah. The yep. even even those stoic moments. You know, like when he ends. You know. Well, help me do all these things, but if not, the hell with you. You know, like yeah, right, a, exactly. Uh, the the wizard played by Mako is not that he he could be related to Avatar here. You know, they <laughs> they have a fun sensibility to them, and that's what makes them work. When they get too serious, they don't work. Wizards doesn't quite figure everything out, but it is a lot of fun, and I like that yeah. it isn't your cookie cutter. Here's this. Here's that. They're going to do this. There's some surprises. There's uh there's more juice to it than a lot of the fantasy animated movies they make these days. I agree. I agree 100%. I think, and, and um, you know, it's funny because this would be more in line. This is like Conan the Barbarian, but this, this wizards almost has more in, in uh, common with Conan and the destroyer. <laughs> yeah, yes. You know, the, the that's second true. Entry yes. Where that's... there's even more comedy where it's almost there's... like half comedy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and Tracy Walter. Yeah. No kidding. Um, now I'm going <laughs> to, I'm going to probably destroy all my credibility and it may be because I was a kid and that was the only one I was allowed to watch as a young kid for obvious reasons. I still have a soft spot for Conan the destroyer. I'd like it too. I do. I think it's a fun movie. I always will prefer Conan the Barbarian because I saw it on cable um, when I was younger and I, and I fell in love with that one. But Conan the Destroyer is a fun movie because it's almost like uh, Conan the Destroyer is um, the bridge 
that links Conan the Barbarian to Red Sonia. Yes, and it's almost like the it's almost like the airplane. It's almost like its own spoof, you know, like right, yeah. what they do with co- <laughs> the way he's playing. I mean, Wilt Chamberlain to protect somebody's virginity. I mean, who didn't know that, that's yes, going into I, we, this? I, uh, we talked about that. Yeah. I just recently was on a um, what was it the, the retro movie geek we were talking yeah. about. I was on there with uh, with Joel, Daryl, and Peter. Yeah. We were talking about that, and I said, "How ironic." Wilt Chamberlain (laughs) is protecting the virginity of the And you know, I mean, I'm just going to say Sarah Douglas's priestess outfit in that was kind of terrific. But anyway. Oh, man. Boy, was she she oozing sex in that that part. I'd have been like, sure, here's your horn. Let's just bring this guy back and get on with it. I'll be your. Holy cow. And then Grace Jones was amazing in that movie, too. It's I mean, a lot you know, of the, fun. When he's it drunk, really is. they have Conan drunk. He goes, Yo, when they, I, they have Conan drunk. Arnold does not play a great drunk, but it's still funny. And it's I find the promise I was kingdom. <laughs> I mean, the yeah. kingdom I was promised. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so this isn't about Conan the Destroyer, but go watch that movie, too. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so now moving much more f- closely into that Conan uh the aura would be fire and ice, which is 1983. And it's, so now it's a few years after wizards. And of course the big thing I thought, we talked about this, a recent episode that we did for fam galaxy. We're talking about dark star and uh, ice pirates. And the funny, the kind of cool thing about those two movies is dark star is a sci-fi movie that's coming in 1974 in the, or 73 in the wake of 2001, right? It's pre star Wars post 2001. Ice Pirates is post Star Wars. It was interesting to see two sci-fi comedies, right? That's you got cool. the, the the pre and post, and that's kind of what we have here. We have Wizards, which is very firmly in the vein of uh, Lord of the Rings, right? Like, yep. and now I don't know how much Fire and Ice feels the Star Wars influence, but Star Wars has come out, not just Star Wars. This is post uh, by a few years, uh, Conan the Barbarian as well. You know, yep. so the sword and sandals genre is back it's no longer the steve reeves hercules thing you know it's gotten a lot darker it's gotten a little edgier it isn't just existing in the realm of films though too because now you have graphic novels and comic books and artists like frank frazetta who gets to collaborate with bocce or bocce gets to collaborate with him and they make this film this fire and ice which is for all the world like just zooming right into some like horny little 12 year old kid boy's brain (laughs) I'm and telling it, you, you know, just extracting all of that and just vomiting it out on screen. <laughs> now, exactly. Now, I got to say, I was watching. Um, I have this on Blu-ray. I have Fire and Ice on Blu-ray. And one of the things was uh, hearing Ralph Bakshi talk about uh, Frank Frazetta. Now, um, I'm just looking him up. I want to give this a little bit of background on Frazetta. He was an artist. Um and he was a fantasy and science fiction artist. Uh, he was noted. Uh, I'm, I'm on a Wikipedia now. So this is coming yeah. right from Wikipedia. Noted for uh, comic books, paperback books, covers, paintings, posters, LP record, album covers, and other media. I know the one thing I always thought of was the gauntlet. That poster yes. that he did for that, that Clint Eastwood movie, The Gauntlet. You see that poster and you're like, I got to see that movie. At the same time knowing I can't see that movie living up to the post. Oh, and it totally does. You watch the movie and you're like, right. what the hell? What the hell right. was that? What was that? What, what that poster? I want to see the movie that was in that poster. I don't want to see what actually, I don't want to see the actual yeah. movie. Um, he is often referred to as the godfather of fantasy art and one of the most renowned illustrators of the 20th century. 
Um, and apparently he's also the subject of a 2000 documentary painting with fire, which I did not see. I haven't he was seen inducted it into inducted into the comic book industry's Will Eisner comic book hall of fame, the Jack Kirby hall of fame, the society of illustrators hall of fame, the science fiction hall of fame, and was awarded a life achievement award from the world fantasy convention. So this is the real deal. I mean, Frank Fazetta is the real deal. And one of the more interesting things that Bakshi was talking about, he sort of, uh, <laughs> gave two stories here. Um, when Mick Jagger showed up and he didn't know it at the time, but Mick Jagger wanted to, uh, voice one of the parts in Lord of the Rings, but he was just showed up and he was sort of feeling around, you know, to see what was going on at the studio while, while, uh, Bakshi was making Lord of the Rings. And Bakshi said, all the women went crazy. They ran into the bathroom to touch up their hair, their makeup. Mick Jagger was there. They were going absolutely ballistic that Mick Jagger was there falling all over themselves. You know, they were in love with Mick Jagger. When Frank Frazetta was there, all of the men artists were just falling all over themselves. <laughs> they couldn't. He, Ralph Bakshi said, I had to talk some of them down because they're saying, I can't do, I can't do this. Ralph, Ralph, you know, Frank Frazetta's here. I can't, I can't do the animation. He's going to be watching me. It's not going to match his quality. I can't do it. Bakshi said every day he had to talk his animators down to get them to do the work because they were all so in awe of Frank Frazetta. Like when he would walk down the hall, they would just sort of separate and, and, and they, and they couldn't, they couldn't do it. They couldn't do the work because Frazetta was there and they just were in awe of him. They're saying, I don't match him. I'm not as good as him. I can't do it. And he, and Bakshi just had to keep getting involved and saying, no, do the work. He's just there to sort of assist and then lend to the, lend to the look of it and everything. You know, it's a, It was just very interesting. Those two, two sort of stories that he told about within his own studio, these two different guys showing up. Yeah. And that's a funny, that is a funny story. And the thing is, there's a good reason for all that sort of adulation, I think, in a sense, because he really was, and particularly in the 80s, I mean, you know, heavy metal and all of this stuff, like you just, the, even stuff he didn't do, you think his, his images are so evocative, of, right. he, he sort of brings to mind that rugged guy standing on the hillside with the woman wrapped around his leg and the dragon in his, he's got yes. the dragon by the neck and there's a probably a panther somewhere in the nearby vicinity. <laughs> and, you know, what's, I think, interesting about pairing these two guys is you look at Frazetta's work, what really made Frazetta's sci-fi art stand out is he was very much about capturing the realism of, even when his images aren't that real, and certainly most people's physiques don't look like the people in Frazetta, but <laughs> right. then we are... Clint Eastwood never looked like he looked on no. the cover, on the post of the gauntlet. But That's then you sure. and I aren't fighting pterodactyls on a daily basis and, you know, having <laughs> right. to ride mammoths into <laughs> ice shields. But the these characters, the, the, the musculature, the way they're drawn, they are very, very fit, but there's also a very sort of like you know, almost classical artist feel to them. You know, yes. there's a realism. They feel like they're there. This, this, I'm gonna, I'm gonna make people roll their eyes. You know, there's an element of like Michelangelo's David, that kind of Renaissance painter <laughs> yeah. art at play here. I'm not saying it's the same thing. This is beefcake and cheesecake kind of art, but he's trying to. This is 20th the same century. Thing. This is this yes. is Michelangelo, Michelangelo working or uh, or Da Vinci working in the 20th century. But why did be. those uh, those artists Caravaggio and all of those artists and, and Michelangelo and Da Vinci they used 
the 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 realism of the human body to evoke yep. things like the uh, biblical you know uh epic scenes and things like this and the the duality between man and god and stuff like that and i mean in a in a different sense lady riding on a panther is you know he makes that come alive because his attention to realism and then bakshi with his rotoscoping that's what it we're calling it because that's what it was called is that it's that same thing this attention he wants to make the fancy world feel real to you and tangible like you can touch it and these are the two perfect guys i think to work together to create a fantasy world that's bigger than life right that was what the the, what those 80s fantasy movies those live action ones were uh slamming up against was how do we make fantasy worlds uh feel real but also feel big so we have to get a big roided up guy we have to have this actor whose neck is thicker than the other five people working on the film but can he act you know they were the 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 costumes don't look right they look cheesy we got to film in bulgaria you know to make this look fantasy like and all these things would go wrong and yet even when the best is up on screen conan the barbarian is a fantastically written fantastically shot fantastically scored movie even has some good acting here there and arnold's giving it a good go but those fantasy scenes where he's fighting a snake, that looks terrible. You know, those. Yes, the, the effects. Now, right. the, the part with the ghosts, and now this is getting off topic a little bit. The yeah. part with the ghost in Conan the Barbarian always creeped me out because I knew they were animated as I was watching them, but yet they looked. Yes. They looked as if they came right from hell. And you that's, know, even that's like the thing animation, of the animation from hell. Yes. Yeah. The way they move. It's the same thing with an older movie, The Forbidden Planet. Like the animation gives you an energy that you're not getting because the special effects aren't quite there yet. And so here's right. Fire and Ice that can let you gives you a world that looks like the thing that's on the cover of the box there, right? There's the there's the Frazetta art, and the boxy animation is gonna get you pretty close to what you're yeah. seeing on the cover. And that I mean, well, I'll go ahead and set the movie up, but that I think is the big draw here. Here's a movie in 1983 that wants to let your mind run wild. The way as a young kid, you're looking at these posters. What kind of fantasy world can I can I be in? And it feels lived in, and yet it's able to show me the dinosaurs and the giant creatures and the armies and show it to me in a way that doesn't feel small. You know, yes. it's like the the when I think it was. Tom Hanks or somebody who mentioned the first time they went to see they as a kid going to see like something like the seventh voyage of Sinbad or and and thinking there's no it was way. Jason and the Argonauts yeah, the you Argonauts know, what he said it was during the um what was it, when they were the um, Oscars they were honoring they were yeah they were honoring uh, Ray Harryhausen Tom Hanks has said some people say Citizen Kane or Casablanca give me Jason and the Argonauts yeah and that, it, that was the movie for me as a kid there was another point here somebody was saying I looked at that poster and I thought there's no way. The things on this poster are going to show up in that movie the way they look on that poster. And they did. And I think that's that's kind of where we come in here. Story-wise, this is pretty much boilerplate. But uh Yeah, yeah, not a lot, not a yeah. lot going on here that you know it's it's the fire and the ice. The 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 ice is the the the, the ice world is the evil, the yeah. the um the more um I don't even know it's fire, just sort of um, you know, the 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 non-ice. I guess. Well, that's a, put yeah, it, you know? that's a fire keep, right? That's where they live. They actually live in the volcano. King Gerald exactly, lives inside of exactly. this volcano. And Ice um, Speak. So Ice Speak and Fire Keep. 
Yes. And you know, it's funny because you watch this movie, you watch Fire and Ice, and this is my favorite of, um, this is my favorite Ralph Bakshi movie, but it's not just a straight up Ralph Bakshi film because of Frazetta's involvement in this. Yeah. You watch Fire and Ice and you almost wish Frazetta somehow got involved with Wizards in a way, you know, because (laughs) I think he could have done some very interesting things with Wizards. He could have maybe reined Bakshi in. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> he could have reigned the quote unquote bashiness in from wizards and done some interesting things um, that you see here in fire nights. Now you still get, you still get Bakshi uh, in the form of that princess running around in a bikini. Oh my gosh. <laughs> that was sort of upsetting. Yeah. Cause like she's captured somebody and like every scene is like, definition of the male gaze and yet yes. because he's rotoscoped it she does look quite fetching running down from oh, the I'm creatures and it's like this is very i mean he, he just has her one point she's talking a bit these philosophical concepts of of good and evil and and where do we stand versus the ice kingdom but she's rolling around on this bed the exactly entire time and, she's talking all this dialogue and, at one, and at the scene where she's trying to sort of distract those ogres that have kidnapped her by going under the water yes. and coming up very sensually and she has a dozen a couple of times exactly you're watching this and you're thinking okay i now see the bakshi in fire and ice yeah there's a lot well that's the yeah it's just it's a lot and there's this is a pg film technically there's no actual nudity but there's a lot of implications that oh, are yes. that are actually kind of unfortunate particularly now you have her uh you've got a lot of the characters the the villainous characters there's an element where you know a lot of those villainous characters are implied um you know there's implied homosexuality but that's not really a problem yeah. but then it's kind of tied to their villainy a little bit which is the problem yes. Oh, and yes, that I think is very unfortunate. Even those works you talked about are that, you know, they're the only dark skin characters in the film and they're all like Neanderthal like creatures, you know, uh, that right. uh, that's a, that's a problem that's been laid on other fantasy things. But here it's, I think what well, he gets into the trouble because of the rotoscoping, because he makes these people feel like we're looking at actors, right? Uh, even yeah. though we're looking at animated characters. And so that, that creates an, a sense of, we're watching he he can't escape the realism because of the fantasy you know the fantasy doesn't buy him a pass in this movie i think because that princess is moving very seductively this is not jessica rabbit this is like there are scenes of her you know you watch the, the the creases in her legs as she's rolling around there's a scene when one of the orcs grabs at one of the heroes the uh, I don't. I couldn't even keep track of all the names, but the guy who's more like Tarzan. You know, you kind of got Tar- right, yes, Conan. I know you, mean. you get Tarzan, <laughs> and you got a guy that reminds me of like um, the Phantom. You know, from the old comic right. strips. Except he just has the mask on his eyes. He doesn't have the full blown. You know, but the there's a scene when one of the creatures grabs at him, and you see his hand touch his back and kind of roll down the the like kind of like uh, soft parts of his back and down across his buttocks and. It's just the level of realism that you see that hand grab flesh and move down it. That happens all throughout this movie when they snatch the princess. You know, there's a very tactile feel to it. So when he does some of these things of the more sensual variety or he does these things that call into question the presentation of the characters on screen, 
he he's coming across the same problems that people in a, in a live action movie would have. The, he did, he's made the animation so realistic he doesn't he, he buys no passes. Yeah. Right, exactly. Exactly. And it really is. I mean, as you as you're watching this, uh as you're watching this, uh who is that? Uh the, the name of the the um uh Tigra is the uh Yeah, the Princess Tigra is the yes daughter of King Jerol. It is harder um, to keep track of these characters by far than the ones in Wizards. I personally it, it is. And I'm looking, I'm looking at my I'm looking at my synopsis here. You have, and just real quick, Queen Juliana, who is voiced by Susan Tyrell, yep. who, who narrated those scenes in, in Wizards, and her son Necron, Stephen Mendel, are the evil rulers of the northern kingdom of Ice Peak. Yep. And have been slowly advancing southward in an attempt to conquer the entire region. Their main adversary is King Jerol, a firekeep who has refused to surrender. Hoping to weaken Jerol's resolve, Queen Juliana sends her subhuman army to kidnap Jerol's only daughter, Tigra, who, if all goes according to plan, will eventually become Necron's bride. (laughs) But before the subhumans can return to Ice Peak with their captive, Tigra escapes and during her travels encounters a warrior named Lorne, voiced by William Ostrander, whose entire village was destroyed by Necron's army. Lauren promises to help Tigra make her way home, but there are many dangers ahead of them, and the subhumans are very close behind. So that's the synopsis of this film. And like you said, it's it's not, uh, there's nothing complex. There's nothing yeah. really complex to this story. Um, but what I just really loved about it was the look of it, you know? And yes, you got those problems with, with Tigra. Um, running around in a bikini. And what's funny is uh, Bakshi talks about this uh, in um, uh, the Blu-ray. I read it. Uh, oh, I read. I listened to an interview with him uh, where he talked about how they had 2,000 actresses from Hollywood of all different statures, some famous, some you know nobody had heard of, come in and they had laid out there that one of the things you have to do is take off your clothes so that we can see what you look like when we're going to be rotoscoping you in this very <laughs> skimpy sort of bikini. Um, you hear something like that now. <laughs> it's hard not to think of the Harvey Weinstein style <laughs> yeah. know, things happening. It just, it seems a little strange that, that, that these women come in and say, okay, take off your clothes and turn around. It's not quite my, but, Michael Bay asking, you know, uh, Megan Fox to go wash his car for him. So you can see if she's good for the role. Right. Exactly. This is, but, but Bakshi, but Bakshi justifies saying, look, we're going to be rotoscoping. This is what we're doing with these characters. We are using, we are filming this movie live action and then drawing over it. We're tracing it. We have to make sure that um, they're going to fit, that they're going to work. So he had these actresses come in and take off their clothes. Again, it's just, you you hear, and even this interview was probably, uh, what, eight, nine, ten years yeah. ago with Bakshi. It's just really hard in the modern landscape. Yeah, and and would listen to that, and 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 then you look at the character of Tigra and what this probably this actress who was it who, um, who was the actress? I have it here. The performance model Maggie Roswell, but I think Maggie Roswell might have been the voice. Cynthia Cynthia Leak was the performance model, so she was the body. Maggie Roswell was the voice actor, and 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 the fact that she had to be running around in in a state of mostly undress for the entire shoot, you know, it's just. 
I don't know. It just, it just, in, and like I said, in the current landscape, it just sort of throws a different light on, you know, because yeah. Bakshi's saying, hey, the Frazetta, hey, how great is our life? We get to see all these women come in and take their clothes off. Yeah, but. Yeah. Right. And it's, and, and a lot of that affects, I think, you know, the movie in, in general. Uh, as you pointed out, you know, the plot is very boilerplate. It's boilerplate to the point that I wasn't deeply interested in it in, an, in as much as you would be in a standard sword and sorcery where uh, you've got the guy who's a little bit more like Tarzan and then you have the characters a little more like Conan and they kind of meet up and Dark Wolf is that character. I don't think we mentioned him because he shows up a little bit later into the story. And then from there, it's the 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 quest for vengeance or, or to... You know, it's it, the number of times that Tigra gets kidnapped by one group and then another group. And then, you know, right. <laughs> and uh, so we're trying to uh, to rescue Tigra. We're also trying to save Firekeep from this onslaught. And then on top of that, most of the characters have a vendetta because their families were killed by Dark Wolf. And yes, that's more. And Dark Wolf is just really a jerk. <laughs> I think right. you know, uh, there may be other things motivating him, but he has shunned human was that Necron? Is that no? Name? Sorry, not yeah, Dark Wolf. Sorry, let me start that over. Necron's just a jerk. Yeah, he just has. Oh, he's moved himself out of the the spectrum of humanity. And there's a scene where Tigra is pleading with him and saying, you know, giving him every good reason, and yet he just decides that no chaos is what I'm looking for. But what's really funny is at the beginning of this movie, and the first time I saw it, you're initially sort of sympathizing with Necron. You feel his mother, Queen Juliana, you know, Susan Tyrell yeah. voice star. You get the feeling she's the driving force behind making him, you know, uh, I guess, conquer the world from Ice Peak and have all of all of these glaciers sweeping over the land because he's like, oh, it's, it's, you know, it takes a lot out of him and Queen Juliana is sort of pushing him forward to do it. You feel a little sympathy to him. I'm sorry. You feel a little sympathy with him until Tigra enters the picture and you realize this guy is just a straight up egotistical jackass with the <laughs> yes. way he's talking to her mother. Don't bring any of your whores in here anymore. At that point, you realize, no, Necron is the full evil. Juliana might've nurtured it, yeah. but now he's gone beyond her. He's beyond even her as far, you know, his evil has gone beyond what his mother was ingraining in him. And you get that because, and I liked, I, first time I saw this, I was, like I said, I was kind of, I wasn't so much rooting for Necron, but I sort of was like, oh, this poor guy, his mother's pushing him to do this stuff and it's really taking a lot out of him. And then that moment when he's there with Tigran, what he's saying, you're like, no, this guy is just a straight up douche. He should, he should die. He is the evil one in this movie. And all of a sudden, Queen Juliana is in the background. And this guy is the full-on evil. Right. And they don't give him any more definition of that. Because I agree with you. Initially, they set that up. And, you know, she's not just pushing him to rule the world. She's pushing him to get married, which I think he's even less excited about. I think right. I think yes. the fact that she's trying to hook him up with all these women and she can't kind of read the writing on the wall there is right. <laughs> it's maybe frustrating him even more deeply. And yet... They don't delve into any of that uh, in the story. He kind of just ultimately becomes because I, you know, there's that point where she's pleading with him, and you wonder, is there anything beyond this? 
when his initial response, but no, not really, because from there it just becomes a series of him battling the rest of the heroes in the story. Yep. And that's kind of a problem. Like Tigra just doesn't, she really doesn't do a lot other than the classic thing that, you know, the heroines would do in some of the older style movies. He gets, you know, kidnapped and then rescued and kidnapped. And she, right. Th- yeah, there's a couple a of moments where she tries to, you know, the, there's never really a point where she kind of takes a real uh, charge in the story at all. And and that's unfortunate. Uh, So as a story, you know, it doesn't quite work for me towards the end. We get a lot of sword fights and battle. Well, sword fight against sort of that mind ice power, whatever it is exactly that Necron has. And the first time you see Necron raising the ice glaciers, I, I, that's a weird scene too, because it's animated in such a way where, as you point out, he makes the mention it's taking great power and 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 energy to do this, but it almost looks like he's also having a he's having a special moment there <laughs> during that <laughs> ice glacier. That that's almost the first scene you see in the film, and I'm like, this dude's a freak. Uh, yeah. <laughs> there's a little, there's a strange bit there. I'm like, what are we what are we aiming for here? Yeah, should we be watching this? Right? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> particularly, but. What I think is like really what I remembered it seeing this as a kid and, and, and what it still sticks with me now, you get a you get a certain amount of freedom through this animation. It is still kind of rugged. It looks like the it looks like the kind of worlds and things I drew on the side of my math homework back in like, you know, the eighties and nineties. Right. But that's kind of the draw, isn't it? That here is this world that we would only see in comic books and it's moving the way we would expect real characters to move and there's a scene early on when Lauren, i guess uh is he's being chased by the orc creatures and he he is chased up this giant massive tree and through this sort of jungle and the animation there and the way it's handled when the movie works it's as captivating as the scenes that we saw in the uh that silhouette film that we reviewed the first time remember the um, the adventures of prince ahmed prince ahmed when this yeah. movie is working it's working on that same level of a great grand silent epic uh that just has broken through the bounds of what constrains it when they're climbing up that and you're watching the characters fall and some creatures are picking them off you know in the in that jungle scene and he's crawling up the vines i mean that's transporting that is that is big level fantasy adventure stuff in my mind like that scene was amazing and watching it happen and sitting there thinking oh man i wish someone had made a william uh not william excuse me had made an edgar rice burroughs tarzan in this style and i mean later disney does but they also disney fight you know the the freedom of motion and the freedom of animation that matched the kind of things i saw in my head when i would read a conan novel or read a tarzan novel and that's what works for me in this movie is just the the freedom that the animation gives for these characters to come to life and embody very very clearly just these pulpy fantasy tropes uh that are boilerplate but also very familiar and so you there's also a fondness to them right and it's very interesting you mentioned uh conan the barbarian because in, in addition to frank Rosetta. Uh, and his contributions to Fire and Ice, he was a producer and also helped, uh, you know, actually sort of flesh out the film's characters. Um, the script for this movie was penned by Roy Thomas and Jerry Conway, both of whom uh, wrote for Marvel Comics. As a matter of fact, Thomas was the one who introduced Conan the Barbarian to American readers. <laughs> 
So it's very interesting that you have that connection there because you get that, you know, it, 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 it seems to, um, it's at least part of the, uh, uh, the, uh, lineage of this movie comes down from Conan the Barbarian. I thought that's really, uh, very cool. Yeah. And, and, you know, and to be honest, like when I'm saying this, the time I'd have seen this film, Conan the Barbarian, the Marvel comic is exactly what I would have been reading. I wouldn't have been reading, uh, Robert E. Howard, and I had not, like we had just talked about, I'd seen Destroy Conan the Destroyer, but not Conan the Barbarian. So, right. yes, it that's exactly what it was. It stemmed from the comic books. And so I think th- on that level, this movie, for all of its other issues, it still works. It's transporting. You watch it, and it has a freedom of of motion and a and a and it gets across those very direct emotions of a pulpy story like this better than most of those fantasy movies that we're talking about from the 80s. Like, uh, you know, there are a couple good ones, but think of the teams of ones that were not very good. You know, the Deathstalkers oh, and, you know, uh, yes, there were plenty like of that. Them. Yeah. <laughs> nope. Yep. I agree. Now, ultimately, though, this has always been my favorite Ralph Bakshi film. Even though it's not a straight up Ralph Bakshi movie, there are other people who got involved. The, this one for me, this is the one I always sort of gravitate to. Yeah, me me too. I think the thing is, is like even the boilerplate story, this one's more overall successful to me than Lord of the Rings. There's a lot of things I like about that one, but it also feels unfinished in a sense. You know, he he kind of doesn't even give us the 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 closure of the the end of the story. And, uh, (laughs) you know, but, but he also isn't clearly only making part of it. You're sort of confused about what he's actually doing there. And the animation and some of the rotoscoping still felt kind of rough there. There's a fluidity to this story and there's a simplicity to it that I think does work better because he doesn't get caught. Now, the only thing I do wish, and this is weird coming after our discussion wizards, I kind of wish this movie did embrace the humor just a little bit more or that it it had more character. I think the fact that I didn't kind of, I I bounced off of all of these characters. I never felt really with them. Uh, I was just sort of watching them do things beautiful as it was. I can certainly understand that. Absolutely. Um, yeah, no, I'm right there with you. But this, I mean, I think the this is if you're looking for a fantasy adventure in more of that that swashbuckling mold, this is definitely more in that vein, the wizards. It's definitely a little bit yeah. more of that kind of fantasy. And the, the the truth of it is nobody really made that kind of fantasy. Even even the the thing that makes Conan the Barbarian strong truthfully is what you know both uh the director and the writer of that and oliver stone writing on that for for uh conan the barbarian they bring different things to that story to transform it so it isn't the pulpy robert e howard exactly you know they're telling a different story it's a little more serious it's a little bit different to help that movie be the movie that it is and that's really good but this is the kind of unadulterated this is what those pulp storylines actually looked like most of the time. Yep. Yeah, I agree 100%. So what's your rating on this one, Dave? I'm going to come in at I'm going to say a 9 out of 10. Okay. Fire and ice. And um, I'm a I'm a I'm a 7 uh for this one too, but it's like 
if the story were stronger, I mean, the animation and and the way that the story is told, I love that. I would love to uh, see this style of style attached to an even better story. But it is, I do strongly recommend it, particularly for fantasy fans. You're going to have a great time with it. And yes. I, I know I gave them both about the same rating, but I do think this is ultimately, as an overall fantasy story, I think it's a little more successful than Wizards. Um, there's a movie that Jason Widgington was just telling us about, and um, our buddy Victor Rodriguez has also told me about. It's coming out October 29th. It's called The Spine of Night. Have you heard about this, Dave? No, I have not. So I'm going to see if we, we – it should be out by the time, not our next episode, but the episode after, and hopefully maybe we can review it. It is a – from what I understand, it is a fantasy – uh, graphic novel kind of swashbuckling fantasy done in the Bakshi style. I've seen clips of it and it's wow. done in that style, but with a story that deals with these wizards and sorcerers and warriors fighting over this sort of uh, it's a, it's a flower or something that gives is a special power and it is over time deteriorating. And the last of the guardians of the flower are coming up against the usurpers who want to use it as this thing is wilting. So it's on its final days and they're still standing guard against it. And he's told me it's violent and uh, intense. It has a, a great like voice cast on it. So it sounds like it's going to be really, really good. And uh, we may have to pull that one up, but he mentioned fire and ice in his comparisons. <laughs> so oh, I'm nice. intrigued. Yeah, definitely. I'm yeah. I'm looking forward to seeing that. So, yeah. So the, uh, I think, I'm, I come down with Dave. I think if you're looking to get into any boxy, these are the two movies you probably want to see. I would throw in Lord of the Rings also, particularly mm-hmm. uh, for family friendly. And it's funny too watching Lord of the Rings years, years later. I mean, I love the Peter Jackson movies, but it's funny to see if you look at them, you can see that the way Bakshi staged a couple of these things. I think Jackson remembered that and did the same, whether he knew it or not. I agree. Uh, so, uh, yeah, particularly the death of Boromir, you see a couple of those things and you think, you know what? He wasn't, wasn't that far off. Right. (laughs) So that's, uh, that's going to close us out for the episode. Uh, next episode we are going to do, uh, we're going to have, um, a friend of ours who's been on the, on Phantom Galaxy before, uh, Greg Bench come on with us and he's going to, uh, help us review some Halloween and kind of horror-themed animated specials and movies. We're still kind of putting that together. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. I'm really looking forward to it. And then we'll we'll all give our list of sort of our, our top favorites. And then we'll, we'll, we'll pick one movie to kind of do a more in-depth review on. That should be great. I did very quickly before we leave, Dave, want to just uh, mention the winners of the contest here. So I did pick. Yes. We pulled two... Um, two names out here of people that shared this. This was shared on Facebook and uh, I just kind of put them into a, a grab bag here and just randomly pulled. And, and we did have a handful of people who did share it and who, who went over and did review. So we thank you for that. And uh, two I have here, Brian Stitcher. So Brian, I know Brian's on Facebook a good bit. He's in land of the creeps. He's, he's over yep. at Phantom galaxy a lot and he's a good, he's a friend of the show. He, Brian, I will get to you and uh, we will, we'll get you uh, one of the, one of those two, and we will do the same for Zach Baker. Zach Baker is the second one, and Zach, uh, you know, in addition, also sent us uh, a, a, an email message letting us know how he he really enjoyed the uh, the podcast, and he also pointed me to a book 
called the 50 greatest cartoons uh, selected by a thousand animated professionals. So I'm looking forward to wow. checking that out. It has on the cover, it has Gertie, the dinosaur and Popeye and Betty Boop and all these characters, Dave. So uh, oh, I have to awesome. send you a picture. It looks really great, but yeah, that's great. I'd love to see it. So congratulations, Zach and Brian, and I will be getting in contact with both of you. I'll let you know. Uh, again, I have a couple different copies of these things. So you basically will be able to have your choice. I think of what, of what you want. So we were giving away Waltz with Bashir and we were giving away uh, Batman Ninja. In addition, next time when we do the Halloween episode, I've got some things too. And I will mention that at the start of the episode. So Dave, before we leave, uh, go ahead. Is there anything you want to let the readers know about other places that they can find you? The readers. My gosh, it's getting late. (laughs) The listeners. Absolutely. Um, I still have my blog at dvdinfatuation.com. Still posting reviews uh, every other day over there. So come over and check that out. Um, I'm on Twitter at dvdinfatuation. I'm on Facebook. I'm on Instagram. I have my YouTube channel. Um, Again, I haven't added anything to it since June, but uh, it's out there. And, uh, of course, other podcasts, the uh, DVD Infatuation podcast over on Jason Pyle's uh, Considering the Cinema, uh, sort of an offshoot of that one. Um, and it's been a lot of fun and, uh, you know, getting to solo host and it's just uh, very interesting. It's, it's a new experience for me. So the DVD Infatuation podcast at Considering the Cinema. Um, also, Land of the Creeps with my very good friends, uh, Greg, Greg Amortis and uh, Bill the Butcher Van Vagel. And, um, you know, we just have so much fun. That's why the uh, episodes run so long. We just have so much fun talking that uh, we kind of lose track of time. Uh, and, of course, um, the Horror Movie Podcast, which uh, we do have. We still have two episodes recorded, just waiting for them to get released. Um, and that's with my good friends, Wolf. Uh, sorry. And that's with my good friends, Gilman Joel and Wolfman Josh. Yeah, thank you. You're all over the place, Dave. And all and I, like, I, I am. Yeah, I just keep suggesting new ideas to like. Hey, Dave, how about we do this and do that? But, no, but I'm up for them. I'm yeah. I'm loving them. I'm loving some of those things you're coming up with, and uh, pretty much all the things you've come up with so far. And I'm anxious to uh, to be involved with them. So that's great. And I'm I'm really enjoying this too. I it's funny now to think this is now our our fifth episode, and we've gone yeah five episodes strong. It's always funny. I have these ideas. I'm like, well, I made it past five. I think we're good. It's like we're doing <laughs> doing an X Files retrospective, and I have about four co-hosts over on that one now. And wow. it's like we've gotten through the first three seasons, and I'm like, okay, I think we could do this. You know, we've we've yep. we're cresting the hill. If we could talk three hours <laughs> about the X Files <laughs> every time, but it's a lot Very of fun. Cool. Thanks so much for uh, for joining me, and oh, we will be you. back next month. And uh, Dave will be pop, popping up again next month for some of our uh, coverage for Phantom Galaxy. So look for that. And as always, you can find us at Phantom Galaxy at Podbean.com. If you're listening to this episode and you enjoyed it head over to uh, Apple Podcasts and just leave us a review, five-star review. Uh, It helps get the word out there more if you share this as well. And uh, anyone who shares and leaves uh, reviews for for this episode, I will be keeping uh, uh, tabs on that. And while we won't be, I don't have a, a formal prize right now, when I announce a prize for next episode, I will make sure that anyone who shared and uh, shared this episode or left reviews will be included in the next prize drawing. So uh, awesome. with that, this is the Phantom Galaxy and Illustrated Fans signing out. Take care, everyone. 
If you've been enjoying the music here on Phantom Galaxy, the opening theme and the closing theme are both brought to you by synth-pop artist Aries Beats. He's done a lot of really cool stuff in the world of synth-pop, a lot of very interesting genre-based retro themes. You can find more of his work over at ariesbeats.bandcamp.com. And until next time, we are the Phantom Galaxy. Thank you.